Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nikazi Oates, the host of the channel. Joining me today is Kate Meisner and Nicole Chowan Jr. Kate is the Director of Prison and Justice Writing at PEN America. Nicole is a counter storyteller, editor, and the founder of Roots. Wounds, Words, a literary arts revolution for BIPOC storytellers, with Kate as the editor and Nicole serving as one of the contributors, they have produced The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. Today, we'll be talking about this book, which is published by Haymarket Books. Kate and Nicole, welcome to the show. Oh, thank, thank you. Kazi, great to be here. And you have such a beautiful radio voice. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I want to talk about you two for a moment. Um, and perhaps we can enter this particular conversation by telling a bit of your experiences. So with Kate, I know that you have facilitated uh, poetry workshops in incarcerated spaces. And you also lead uh, the PEN America's prison and writing um, program. Tell me a bit about what you have experienced. Sure. Well, I I know I began teaching years ago in uh, Rikers Island with young women, with teenagers, and also simultaneously was teaching at the only Max security women's prison in upstate New York, Bedford Hills, and it became the center of my life, this work. I really saw the injustice that happened in those spaces. I really fell in love with the people I was working with. I really understood that their uh, words and work were potent and powerful, and the media wasn't doing it justice. So it was really to my surprise and joy that... um, Nicole, you're giving us some, I think you're giving us some springtime sounds. Sorry, I'm interrupting just to, I can hear the birds and it's beautiful. It's kind of a metaphor actually for what I'm about to say, which is that uh, I started to become really frustrated by the kind of one note dynamic between facilitator and participant that happened in prisons. I was working with with, uh, people whose words I felt needed to be reaching a larger public. And when you work within a facility that way, you're subject to censorship and what the warden says is okay. And, you know, what, if you want to bring the work out, you're jeopardizing the program you teach through and the program you teach through is important to the people who take those classes. So there was all of this uh, conflict that I came to after teaching for for a number of years. And uh, when I came to PEN America, what was so liberating as a facilitator, as a writer myself was to get to be now uh, in, equal, in an equitable, equal relationship with the writers behind the walls. So now what, what I do is I work with writers in prison to uplift, showcase, and develop their work. Uh, and that's not just me. I have a team of five with a, with a couple of gap year fellows and interns. And through that, we have a mentor program with about 400 working writers mentoring through the walls. And as we know, mentorship really goes both ways. So, yes, we have working writers out here helping writers on the inside, but they are also being helped uh, in reverse. We have a 30-year and running prison writing contest, which awards in uh, six categories, cash prizes, publication, a yearly anthology. And uh, we have a Writing for Justice Fellowship, where we award prestigious fellowships to writers in all points of the ecosystem, writing about mass incarceration, to develop projects that really help raise under-talked-about topics in the public consciousness around prison and mass incarceration. Uh, and yeah, more to come. But this is, uh, this is my journey, and I'm more excited to hear Nicole's, so I'll stop here. 
<laughs> no problem. And so, Nicole, um, you have facilitated um, writing workshops as well, and you are very educated. Um, you know, you hold an undergraduate degree, you have graduate degrees in education and law, you have had great occupations as a teacher of fourth grade, um, and you also was a um, law school adjunct professor. And at the same time, as I read your essay, as you name, you were a felon. Tell me how you have navigated um, the academic space in particular, but any spaces that you want to um, share with us, given your background of being formally under state control. Yeah, Nakazi, thank you so much for that question. It's it's a large one, um, and I and I will answer it in just a second. But I want to I want to say that whenever I hear Kate's talk about her journey. Um, through this work, I just, I'm always reminded of how divine it has been. Um, and I'm just so thankful to be in community with, with you, Kate, talking about the work that you did even before Penn, but especially talking about this work that you've continued to do with Penn and the expansiveness of the program because of your prior experiences, as well as the, as well as the vision. Um, it's really, it's really a treat to, to be in community with and Nakazi, I agree, your voice is butter. Um, with, with that being said, you know, a, a couple of things about me. So I grew up in 1980s Brooklyn, specifically Bushwick and Bed-Stuy. Um, and so I grew up in the middle of the crack epidemic. Um, I had, my father was addicted to crack cocaine. I've written a lot about that. I had a bunch of cousins, both male and female, who were... Um, farmed in and out of the prison industrial complex because of their poverty-inspired participation in the crack trade. Um, I myself have participated in the crack trade. I also later on became a prosecutor. I did not prosecute drugs because I knew my, my personal philosophies were different from the laws, but I prosecuted domestic violence, right? And I sent a lot of people to jail, sent a lot of people to prison, placed a lot of people under community supervision like probation. Uh, and then I became a felon, right? I really wanted to make sure that that, that that sequence of events was super clear because I think there's a widely prevalent myth out there that most folks who are just as involved um, and very educated, if you will, committed those crimes before having educational and occupational opportunities, right? Um, in many cases, that's true. I mean, there are folks in the sentences that create us like Reginald Dwayne Betts and Mitchell Jackson, who's... Um, whose experiences have been that, right? They, they both committed crimes earlier in life, then went to prison, then went on to obtain various degrees and hold amazing jobs. But that's not everyone's experience. It certainly wasn't my experience or Piper Kerman's experience, who's also featured in the sentences that, creates us, that create us. Um, I actually got my degrees, right, and had the quote unquote good jobs before committing my crimes, um, at least committing the crimes that I was caught committing. <laughs> Um, I was born into poverty, amassed an incredible amount of student loan debt and subsequent credit card debt in order to, quote unquote, achieve the dream. That is many people's experience, particularly black and brown people. Um, so despite having those degrees and those what some people may say are good jobs, I still live check to check, was still constantly in the red and quite frankly, lived in a, in a much lower spiritual vibration where I relied on um, money and the material world rather than the power of who I am as a spiritual being. So my experience navigating the academy, to go back to your question, Nakazi, um, really wasn't impacted at all by my criminal record. I had committed crimes as a child, as a teenager, right? And hadn't been caught for those, right? But my experiences navigating academia and good jobs, quote unquote, and white supremacy then led to and impacted my criminality. It wasn't the other way around. Um, I've been asked, I'm always asked to lecture um, and teach at various colleges and universities and academic institutions. And for me today, it's a much more liberated experience than before my conviction when I was a professor at Fordham or when I taught fourth grade at an at a elementary school in my neighborhood in Best Eye in Brooklyn, right? Then I had to pretend to be someone I wasn't because there was so much shame in me being poverty born. 
But now, you know, I'm able to be my full self, right? As being Black, as being poverty born, as being non-binary, a femme, and a felon. I own all of that power. That's all of who I am. So I think that that all of those labels make me a powerful embodied spirit in the same way that I think they've made Kate a powerful embodied spirit. Listening to you, Kate, I just love being taken on that journey. Hmm. Well, Nicole, I think you just showed everybody why you were one of my first calls when I had this book in mind. <laughs> I mean, really, your pedagogy and how you live and how you and I think bringing spirit in is is always you know tender in academic spaces, but it's very powerful to me too. And I think this book. Uh, really moves with the power of of individuals' spirituality and their embodiment of spirit. So I think you your the way you describe yourself, that is the character of the folks in this text as well. And it was very very powerful to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, um, before we get into the book, one of the questions that I um, asked of every author. Um, is this question around um, vulnerability or self-doubt? Because I believe that we don't talk enough about it in the public square. And one of the things I've been doing is really getting um, my guests to open up and to share a piece of themselves. And I wondered if the two of you could recall or reflect a moment that you had just tremendous self-doubt, but then also... um, couple that with a moment of trauma, tri, uh, triumph that you actually had? What a great question. Nicole, do you have one off the top of your head? I'm still cooking. Yeah, please. There's so many. There, you know, in that vein, <laughs> exactly, because there are so many. I will say that every time, every time I show up to the page, every time I show up to the page, I come back self-doubt, I combat fear, but I'm also really clear that that self-doubt and that fear are vestiges of ego. (laughs) And that's exactly what I was trying to get at, you know, from a different angle, a different lens, but precisely in Remix the Plan Returns to the Purpose, right? Uh, My essay in the sentences that create us, right? It's all about like, we need to remove the ego. It's the ego that's saying to us, you know, you you don't have what it takes. You don't know what you're talking about. You're not good enough, right? Um, So yeah, every time I show up to the page and because of that, because I'm aware that that's going to happen and that the ego is operating constantly and needs to be shut down and put to the side constantly, I have a morning um, writing ritual, if you will, that takes, no, it takes about an hour to complete, but it's super necessary for me in facilitating the process of removing the ego and the tentacles of shame, doubt, fear, all of that stuff. Um, and so whenever I write a chapter, a page, a sentence, shit, a word, quite frankly, I'm triumphant. What are your thoughts, Kate? I think that's so beautiful, and I, I definitely want to know what your morning ritual is, but that's for another time. I, you know, really what it pushed me to think about what came up when you were talking, Nicole, is that I, we're on the African-American Books channel here, and, uh, you know, a lot of the vulnerability for me around being a writer and artist, there, there are so many stories, but with this particular book, what I had to grapple with was being a white woman in this work, and and the intentionality of, of creating a wide variety of voices I was uplifting and the, the questions of who am I to do this? And I think it's important to name that because, uh, you know, so much of my work is about forefronting, supporting and uplifting the voices of, of justice impacted people, particularly people of color, that some of my anxiety and self-doubt came because of the politics of our era. And, and not to say I disagree with the politics of our era, but I really had to sit with the question of why me? And the answer was, I have the community. I know the people to ask, and I'm in a position to leverage resources to make a major impact. And this is a community book. Sure, my name's on the cover, but it's very small. The work inside is, is really, you know, uh, is really the labor of love of f- over 50 people, you know? And so I think part of the vulnerability of, of going into writing or especially when you're editing or being a conduit or being somebody who brings community together, you know, part of those, that self-doubt was very necessary because I had to clarify my intentions very deeply 
and I had to codify it for myself in order to step powerfully into the space and say, why should I be here? What can I contribute? Why me at this moment? And if I didn't have an answer to all those questions, I might be shaky or lost. So I, I wanted to, to raise that in the context of race, given this podcast, given this project, given what you're sharing, Nicole. Uh, although um, I will say that this book also creatively liberated me while I was editing it. And part of the charge of the book was, through reading all these essays, was, my God, if these writers in prison could push through the shame and the doubt to put their words on paper this powerfully with the risks they assume in order to do so, what's my excuse for not living in my fullest creative expression? So since editing this book, my own personal art projects behind the scenes have been explosive and exploding. So uh, yeah, I, I kind of went all over the map with that one, but I'll leave it there. Now, can I also add to that though, as someone who's a contributor um, to this book, to this offering, I had to work one-on-one -on -one with Kate. So Kate's obviously hit me up and was like, yo, do you want to contribute to this? I said, yes. And so then Kate's became the editor for, for my work. And I have published enough <laughs> to, to be able to describe many of experiences where my editor has tried to erase or whitewash or whatever my voice. <laughs> right, has tried to change really what is the voice, the, the rhythm, the lyricism, the tonality of the work because it doesn't match their own, right? Culturally, it does not match their own. I never had that experience, not one time. And this isn't me just saying this because Case has invited me to this, this situation. I'm, I'm gonna always be as transparent as possible. But I will tell you from day one, I did get edits, like let's not get it twisted. But those edits were to clean it up, right? And get closer to the point rather than about voice, about language, about vernacular, about vo tonality. So I wanna just say that to you, Kate, that I appreciate everything you just said, but also the intentionality about making sure that all of the contributors, many of us, like you said, are people of color, black and brown folks, our voices were always centered on the page. Well, thank you for saying that, Nicole. And I, and I hope this is a, can be a sort of a teaching for other people and how to be in that kind of relationship. And, you know, man, I mean, it came to you for your voice. What else? <laughs> anyone, anyone listening right now would tell me I would be a fool if I didn't. So thank you for that. Really, I take that to heart. And I, I hope other people get some value out of that exchange. Kate, to that point, I want you to talk a little bit more about your process in putting together this book. What was it like? You know, Nicole said that you um, hit her up and said, hey, you know, do you want to contribute to this book? But, you know, you have over 50 contributors. How did you narrow that down? And what was the editing process for this? You know, and also this uh, was produced during the pandemic. So how did that impact the, the process, the writing process, the publishing process of this? Yeah, great questions and, and uh, long answers that I'll try to keep shorter. So essentially, I came into Penn uh, about four and a half years ago, and there, there had been for many years a very slim handbook for writers in prison that was produced by my predecessors and sent and passed around prisons hand to hand and we sent it for free or they sent it for free. And I used to order it for my students. And I was really amazed that this product uh, was given for free to thousands of writers in prison. I admired its journey, but my sense was that it was a really a, a slim craft book, how to write a blues poem, you know, how to format a screenplay. And I thought, you know, we could do something much more expansive with this. So the first year on the job, as I was ideating this, uh, I was really reading mail. We get stacks and stacks and stacks of mail from prison. That's the primary form of communication people have available. And I was learning what people wanted to know, which was not always, how do I write a poem? But instead was, how do I be a writer? Which is a much more ephemeral question, obviously, to answer. <clears throat> We'd get questions about publishing and agents, questions that I have as a writer in the world. And they weren't, you know, it wasn't like a one, two, three, here's how you do it. So I thought, okay, this book has to be both about craft, but also really illuminating the many, many possibilities there are in living a writer's life. And of course, it has to speak to the, cha the tremendous challenges of writing while in prison, which includes 
uh, the possibility of retaliation from the prison, the fact that you can't have access to the internet, which is where our lives as writers live in this day and age, that uh, you don't know where to submit to or how to submit, or maybe you don't have stamps today to submit. Uh, you know, there's just so so many uh, particulars to prison that people wanted to understand how how can I get around this? And each prison, of course, is different. And so the rules don't always apply. So my sense was, okay, I looked at all these questions, what people were repeatedly asking and said, how do we answer these questions through the lived experiences of people who've made tremendous things happen through the walls? And from that point, I got to lean into the the many relationships that I had created and that PEN America had created even before me. And the writers I knew were really doing amazing work. I was keeping my eye out and I was looking at history and I was looking at my community and I was looking at prison educators who had been doing the work for a long time, who could illuminate what uh, a great writing prompt looks like. And then from from there, you know, I set to outlining and uh, convinced Haymarket to publish us. It wasn't a hard convince. And um and the process of editing with folks that are on the outside, because the book is not all people in prison. It's, it's, it's mostly people with justice involvement, formerly or currently incarcerated or justice involved otherwise. But there are other allies in the book because my strong feeling is that we need each other. And I didn't want to completely re-silo writers in prison to being in their own category because I want them to be integrated into our larger literary community. And every essay in this book, damn near, will tell you that uh, you know, allies on the, on the outside are very important to the trajectory of a writer in prison. So that pedagogy, I wanted to bake it in. And uh, during the pandemic, you know, honestly gave me time because I wasn't commuting. I was one of the lucky ones in, in this uh, moment in our world. And uh, but what was very harrowing was that COVID-19 was ripping through prisons and people were dying. People were exposed. People were sleeping on floors when their other prison which get transferred into that prison. I mean, it was, it was, it was chaos. And so I was editing these essays while people were going in and out of lockdown. Uh, one of our writers got COVID and went to the hospital outside of the prison for some time. Um, so it, it, it was, uh, it was spiritually challenging, I think, which is, um, of course, Nicole, we always bring spirit in, but it was spiritually challenging to, navigate the responsibility that came with working with folks who were putting themselves on the line for this book because they believed in its mission. And um, the way that the edits happened through the walls, and I'll end here, is of course, uh, often I would get have to wait for a handwritten copy to come in the mail, we would transcribe it, then I would send edits back through the phone or through JPay, a lot of my work with authors was deciding what is your really unique contribution to tell You've done a lot of things. Um, how do we narrow that down? I'll give one example. For for example, Spoon Jackson ha- is a, a, a pretty famous poet out of California who's been in prison for a couple decades now. And he's done the most amazing work. He's collaborated with Ani DeFranco, my, you know, middle school and high school hero. He's, <laughs> I'm so jealous. I'm always like, Spoon, when are you going to introduce me to Ani? <laughs> he's like, she knows about you, kids. <laughs> And uh, he's he's had symphonies perform his work, you know, has put put his poems to orchestral music. I mean, he's just he's very active. And I said, Spoon, I want you to write about collaborating through the walls. How how have you made all this happen? He goes, Well, I don't know, Kate. It's just organic. I said, Of course, but you know, what do you do in particular, Spoon? Do you ask the people you collaborate for more than they can give for things outside of the collaboration? He said, never. I come as an equal artist and that's the space that we live in. And that, that, that's how we keep a real connection. I said, well, a lot of people in prison are desperate for help. As you know, they're going to need to read that from you to understand what creates a right relationship and a ripe space to collaborate as equals. So from there, we started to go through all of the stories and pick out some really shining examples and then part of my editing work with Spoon was helping codify things that to him were very normal, natural through his spirit and energy. And I was like, but you have a, you have lessons. Let's pull these lessons out. So that was a really, uh, coll- not every piece was that collaborative, but that's just a taste of what, um, what some of this work looked like. That's amazing. And I just have a follow-up question with that, Kate. 
when you came into, when you realized that you want to take on this project or want to develop this project, how um, organized was it in the sense of, did you, did you see this as a text that would provide um, um, writing exercises as well as um, practical advice on how to have an agent or um, find a publisher, um, as well as the, the fundamentals and the foundations of creative writing? Or were you led by the contributors that you had and say, tell me what you think um, would be necessary for incarcerated writers? It is a great question. And I wish it was the latter. <laughs> it would make me sound so much better and cooler, but it really was the former. I was really looking at, um, I was really looking at the questions again, that we were being asked over and over. And I was, I was going to people that I thought had the answers. And so, you know, when I went to, uh, Nicole, I, I was like, I know you're an amazing facilitator, you know, can you, can you write about that? Uh, when I went to Piper Kerman, who Nicole mentioned earlier, I said, um, uh, I, I really think you could write about given the success of Orange is the New Black. How do you write ethically about people that you've served time with? And Piper was like, I got, I have thoughts on that. I gotcha. So a lot of it, this is where really I got to be an artist in the editor role in a very exciting way. Um, and I, I think it's important to say that because I do think in any community project one contributes to, you have to be driven by your own sense of curiosity and passion and creativity in order to produce something of value. You know, you can't totally take yourself out of the equation because then, you know, who's driving the the vision who's driving the process. But there were, there were other cases where I went to my friend, Emil DeWeaver, who'd done many years in San Quentin and I met him in San Quentin and he and had then come home. And I said, you know, Emil, I feel like you could write about anything. What do you got for me? And he said, well, actually I have this really great editing technique that I developed while I was in prison. And I said, great. So I, I think actually the, the real answer is that it was a combination of both. It was really knowing, but, but I started mostly with the people that I knew had done incredible work and said, you know, they have wisdom to give because they've made some enough happen in the world where they've risen to my radar um, and the radar of others in terms of, uh, of, of having, you know, sometimes really like made the impossible happen through the walls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Kate, what struck me in your um, response a little bit earlier was um, when you were going through the mail and you did not get questions about, you know, how to write a poem. You got questions about how to be a writer. And there is the distinction for me, right? Don't tell me about the form. I want to be this thing. I want to be that person. Tell me how to be that person. I can figure out the form you know, through other, you know, channels, but tell me how to be, which I think is um, such a critical um, um, point here. And I want to come to Nicole because in reading your um, phenomenal essay about um, storytelling workshops, one of the things that I'd noticed in reading it is that you do not refer to your participants um, as, um, you know, incarcerated um, people, you refer to them as storytellers, or you also used um, their first names, which is very intentional. Tell me why you chose the language of storyteller, which I think, once again, goes back to the initial um, question that um, were common among the um, the mail um, and letters that Kate's and many other people received about how to be a writer. Oh, that's so easy. Uh, and I think it's, 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 there, it's bifurcated. So the first portion of that is um, I, I refer to everyone that I'm in community with about literary arts um, and who does the work of, of writing or communicating stories as storytellers because of the importance and the merit of oral tradition, particularly in the black diaspora. Um, not all brilliant stories that are written, um, not all brilliant, sto brilliant stories rather are written. <laughs> you know, most of them are told, have been told, um, have survived time through the passing of telling, right, through the telling. So that's the first part. The second part though is, you know, I just, 
your question even is so profound to me. I'm kind of like shook a little bit um, in like a good way, but also in like a sad way. So it would never occur to me, <laughs> my spirit, to refer to anyone as um, a prisoner, an inmate, a convict, a probationer, a, pro a parolee. Um, it would never, that would never even touch my heart. Um, because I think, like, I just already know that we're all spiritual kindred. So that's number one. And number two, we're all human. And I think a large part of the work that this book is doing indirectly is recognizing the humanity of the over 2 million people who are locked up, <laughs> right? In today's society in the United States, there are and like, I have to say this because the number is so profoundly staggering to me. There are 5 million children who have an incarcerated parent. I'm not calling those kids parents, inmates and prisoners and pro you know what I mean? Like, what? That's someone's parent. That's someone's child. <laughs> That's a human being. And yes, when they are with me and we are doing this work together, they are certainly a storyteller. Ooh, give me chills, Nicole. Some something, something that I just have been saying often on these podcasts and press opportunities is I feel it's important to say, and, and you're bringing up the numbers, is especially of children with incarcerated parents is very profound. And that two million number, of course, is who's currently incarcerated. That doesn't even count for who's on pro parole, probation. Right. So the numbers are, are more immense than we can even imagine. If you are in the lucky position to not know somebody who's been to prison or in prison, you are in the minority. And I think there is a sense, right, that this othering language, this segregation of stories, even the sensationalization of stories in the system, all of that uh, undermines the, the, the basic fact that we that publishers haven't admitted yet or the public hasn't admitted yet, which is that incarceration has sadly and unfortunately, but really become just another version of the American story that's as valid as any other American story. It's not niche. It's not a niche story. And the fact that we have to uh, work to humanize people still, that that's one of our driving goals in the work, because it is, because it has to be, but it's shocking to me with that many numbers that that is still something that we have to aim for. Facts. Mm -hmm. Facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And to that point, um, you know, when I saw the title, uh, The Sentences That Create Us, I was struck by the word create. Um, and immediately I thought about the relationship between um, self-discovery and identity development. But Nicole, when I read your piece, I began to take a step back and say, oh, it may be something else. And I just want to quote um, one of your lines here. You write, quote, I submitted a writing workshop proposal with one goal, to bring literary arts, restorative and transformative powers to people who sat in the seats I was just released from. And so that sentence there with restorative and transformative powers, I said, oh, this may be the heart of what this book is actually getting to. So I wonder if you could draw the connections between um, literacy or literary arts, self-creation, and restorative and transformative justice? Oh, absolutely. That's a brilliant question. Absolutely. So I can't wait for your answer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hope that the answer is as smart as the question, truly. Um, you know, in alignment with restorative justice goals, um, writing workshops assist justice-involved individuals, right, and the communities that they come from and or have harmed in healing, period, right? Writing helps us heal from said harms by providing opportunity, opportunities for our storytellers to reflect on, engage, 
excavate and obviously write about the root causes and effects of the harms that they've both inflicted, but also, also endured, right? People don't get to prison in a vacuum. They have endured some shit. A plethora of stories, a plethora of studies um, have, have not only suggested, but found that writing, writing workshops, literary arts promotes the empathy understanding, accountability, emotional processing, so forth and so on that are necessary for us to achieve individual and collective healing, right? And that's not just for people who are outside of the walls. That's for people who are also behind the walls, right? And it's that individual and collective healing that restorative justice aims for. So when you have writing workshops, like the ones that are discussed in and outlined in and offered in the sentences that create us, right? We're we're talking about opportunities for justice-involved individuals to reestablish an identity that is one above inmate, (laughs) right? Like we were just talking about, right? An identity that's above criminal. An identity that's above the worst mistake that we've made, right? These workshops also encourage humanization as we were just talking about, but also like positive thinking about the self as well as about the external and reconciliation. Reconciliation spiritually, reconciliation within the material world. And like what I'm saying may sound like really kind of like far off and far-fetched, but it's not. You know, we've had tons of literary arts programs that have reported how writing workshops have been instrumental to their prison populations and the populations that are under community supervision and control, populations that are involved with the carceral state period, right? We found from those studies that writing workshops and literary arts programming are instrumental to restorative justice processes. For example, in Kansas prisons, we know that there's a poetry program that's been successful in that Virtually no recidivism has occurred in comparison to the nearly 50% average of recidivism in Kansas prisons when it comes to folks who are not participating in writing workshops with behind the bars. In Massachusetts, prison officials have reported that there's been a more than 20% decrease in reconviction rates for incarcerated individuals who have participated in literary arts programs offered at that facility. We can't ignore, right, the the quantitative um, as well as qualitative evidence. We just can't. And I think that this is, in case, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm think, I think that this is one of the reasons why Kate's, Pen America, Haymarket, and all of the folks who contributed to this immensely important book did so, right? Because we, we all recognize and know that the process of articulating one's life journey and tapping into imagination to envision an entirely different life, right? A life with a certain, a different set of circumstances, activities, choices, and as importantly, outcomes is critical for justice-involved folks. It's it's critical for their success, um, for their emotional and spiritual well-being, and for their mental health. So I think that the sentences that creates us is doing the critically important work of helping writing workshop facilitators across the country and really world um, help justice-involved storytellers do do all of that really important work of restoration and transformation that's not going to only positively impact them, but also the communities that they hail from. I mean, I think you, you, I think you absolutely nailed it, Nicole. And actually, the, the book is also you know, aim to reach programming deserts where people don't have the benefit of a facilitator so they can facilitate their own journey. And, and, and many, 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 if not most of the essays in this book speak exactly to what you're talking and speaking to. And I, I want to underscore it even a little bit further that if you imagine, especially being inside prison, where your agency is stripped to a number, literally, I mean, your agency is stripped to nothing. The only agency you have anymore is how you comport yourself, how you study, how you f- f- fill in the, f- how, how you recreate yourself, as you're saying, Nicole. And I think, um, in particular, we, uh, you know, I, I actually, I'm just thinking of a few stories that are kind of flooding my brain at once. But one, um, recently, somebody was, I was on another podcast with a recently released writer 
uh, Ben Free, Benjamin Franzen, who was talking about all these folks in prison and their street names and their street identities. And they come to him and say, this is who I am. And he's like, that's not who you are anymore. You've got to find who you are now. And, and you said something about, you know, elevating. And I think there is a, a, an elevation of spirit that happens through art. We know that, <laughs> you know, any kind of art, any kind of creating, any kind of uh, any medium that helps us to really re-examine ourselves is critical. And, and, and I don't think it can be done alone. I'll put it, I'll, I'll put it that way as well. Like I don't, I don't always think writing alone can do it, but when you write in community particularly, and I love to hear, for example, that John J. Lennon, who offered a lot of work in the journalism chapter, he's one of the most active and, and prolific and awarded uh, writers out there that is currently incarcerated. He's been using the book with a couple guys that he's mentoring on the inside informally, which is exactly my hope for the book. And I think that the idea of being a community around writing is so important too. There's an essay in the book called uh, Building Writing Collectives by Zeke Caligari that instructs uh, folks in prison on starting their own writing collectives uh, in between themselves, which is not an easy task. So we actually have a big project happening behind the scenes to use this book to help uh, develop the uh, leadership talent of incarcerated writers to form their own writing collectives because the, the, the communal space too, in a space like prison, it, it's a space that is not only where you're stripped of agency, but where you're stripped of relationship. You're isolated from family and friends. You are in a space of incredible survival. So the ability to trust others is very shaken. You know, of course, you're not trusting the administration, but you're not often, if not almost always, not trusting other people you're incarcerated with. You just don't know the level of manipulation that people need to engage to survive that space. And so I think that there's something that these rooms do where you come together for a collective purpose of healing, of maybe not even, you don't think you're healing, but you come together for the purpose of writing and then you end up healing each other and you end up developing significant relationships in a space where that is just uh, close to impossible. I think that that can't be overstated as well, the power of writing in community and and. And this book is soaked in that ethic. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Kate, you, you said that in prisons, you are stripped of your agency and you're isolated from your community. Nicole, I want to ask you, we, you know, to expand upon, you know, what Kate's just mentioned, prisons and punitive systems such as, you know, probation and parole, they are inherently institutions of confinement. How do you conceptualize freedom? What does freedom mean or even look like when you're under carceral state control? I can tell you from my experience, um, I could not see, I could not imagine freedom when I was under um, carceral state control, specifically when I was under community supervision as someone who had to report to, to two different probation officers. So I was not in the inside and I certainly can't speak to that experience, but I can speak to being on the outside and having, um, having, having been supervised. Um, I don't know that I can, I think this is the reason why I write uh, because I don't know that I have the oral words to really describe how that feels to you. Um, for me, it was, I was riddled with anxiety uh, every day throughout the day, deeply. Um, because I was afraid of messing up, right? So what does that look like? Oh shit, did I just jay jaywalk? Is there a cop around? Oh shit, do I have my ID on me? I'm walking to the gym. What if I get stopped and I don't have my ID? Could I be violated? Um, I am late for seeing my probation officer because I am doing a babysitting job and my probation officer is threatening to violate me because I'm late, even though I'm stuck at work because I'll be violated if I don't have a job. <laughs> it is a constant cycle of fear because there is absolutely no freedom. Um, and if you've ever been under that kind of oppression, like you get it. I don't know that I could explain that to anyone who's never experienced it, just how pervasive 
and ever-present the feeling of confinement is. So there is no imagination, for me at least, there was no imagination for freedom. Now, when people ask, what do I think liberation looks like um, as someone who is no longer under state control? Um, admittedly, it's still very hard for me to imagine. I think because the carceral state has held such a vice grip over me, my family, Black folks, and poor folks for so long. I mean, I'm thinking about, I tried to ensure the engagement ring that I bought for my wife. I couldn't do that because I was a felon. I was denied. Um, there are so many, you know, I couldn't have certain job opportunities because I was a felon. I was denied. Um, there are so many things that happen. You know, I tried to, 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 it's just, it's pervasive, all the things you can't do. So it's hard to imagine what freedom looks like with this vice grip. But I do think that the beginning of liberation looks like an emancipation of creative and spiritual imagination. I do. Nicole, I, I, I don't know if I'm jumping in too early. That really shook me to my core. Um, I have a few things I just want to respond to. One, I tell everybody that I work with basically that, you know, even when I was working in housing units and prisons, I mean, literally where people were locked and caged and we were at a little card table, I still could not imagine the experience of incarceration. And hearing you say, you know, I don't think somebody can imagine it who hasn't experienced it. I, I think that's true. And I think there are limits to empathy in this regard. Like we put a lot of pressure on literature to uh, bridge relational gaps in terms of experiences, particularly around race, class, incarceration, oppression. But I really think that it takes a leap of the imagination on behalf of the person not oppressed to actually commit to listening and sitting with and understanding those stories. And I think that, you know, for me, the, the, the way I've learned that is through relationships. So, you know, I have a colleague who's on, who was on parole and we went on our first trip together. It was his first trip on a plane, first trip traveling. In the middle of our professional dinner, he gets a call from his parole officer who forgot he was traveling. And the terror that ran through him and holding him on the street as he sobbed, that's as close as I could get to understanding the feeling of my position in life. And I think relationships are what, um, are what help us understand why the system needs to change. And, and barring being able to get close with somebody who's had that experience, although, you know, again, most people do know somebody, ask them about it gently and non-invasively. <laughs> but I do think that I want to, I'm bringing this up because I have a point, which is that this book is not just for people in prison, even though that's who it's written towards. It is really for other people on the outside to understand the experience of the folks inside through this lens of what Nicole is saying, liberation through creative expression. And it, and it is also to understand and firsthand witness that people in prison can have something to teach us. Imagine that. We don't only have to have the impulse as people feeling, giving, caring people to want to go help and save. That's actually an energy that I think is just destructive in, in essence. Really what this book does, I hope, is teach readers that uh, you can learn something from these folks a great deal. They are your equals. The lens is collaboration. And it's through that shared collaborative context of creative expression that we move closer to that goal of shared liberation that, that Nicole's talking about. And thank you, Case, for using that word terror. Because I, I was saying anxiety, and I was like, that's not hitting it. Terror is exactly what it was. And also, thank you for the larger word, because that's exactly it, precisely. Yeah. Yeah, anxiety is not strong enough from what I've witnessed. Yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. I can imagine. I cannot imagine, but I can only imagine. Yeah, terror, sheer terror. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you this question about reframing. How should we reframe the conversation when people will encounter, you know, the text or this this interview and say, "Oh." They're not champion prison, you know, abolition. So why should, you know, we actually care, especially to those who think about prisons and um, prison abolition as a zero sum game? How should we reframe the particular conversation? Well, first and foremost, I hope this book becomes a historical artifact at some point that people read to understand the experience of what used to be prison. 
So um, I get that argument. Um, I understand it. I've heard it. I have not heard it in relationship to this book yet, but I've heard it in relationship to when I used to teach in prisons. And I, I, I uh, do consider myself, I don't usually ascribe to labels so much, but I do consider myself a prison abolitionist as Kate's. Uh, myself speaking on behalf of myself and uh, my sense is that this book is a book that is about prison abolition essentially because first of all it is uh, all about empowering and organizing and and listening to and forefronting the voices of the justice involved so crafting a writer's life in prison is a catchy title that's you know one part of the book but the, the book in in its sum is really asking readers to consider, like I said, the work of the folks inside as incredibly potent and powerful. And it's really a testimony and a testament to why we need people with justice involvement in our communities. And I think that that is an abolitionist frame. These these folks are not benefiting from prison. They have developed themselves with the grit and and self-determination, an unbelievable amount of grit and self-determination that did not come from prison. It came from encountering a mentor or a text that moved them to say, I want to change and grow and be a contributor to society, even if my society right now is prison. And so I, 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 I think it's um, this book in no way, shape or form uplifts prison. Uh, what it does is uplift the people that the, that the system has uh, held captive and abused to be, to be, uh, you know, powerful and potent voices. And I think, you know, I think the argument is flawed either way because when you're anything we can do to support our friends, family, comrades inside prison is just about, uh, you know, enriching and helping somebody's life that's in a really dire environment. I don't think prison abolition means we abandon people that are currently incarcerated, you know, so that to me is in conflict, you know, as a, as a thought. So, um, yeah, that was kind of rambly, but those are some of my thoughts on that. That wasn't rambly at all. <laughs> that, it, was, it was all of that. It was all of that. And I'm going to take it a step further, if I may. Absolutely. You know, when I talk to, about storytelling, the bottom line is that narratives, first person lived narratives are the things that change policies, not statistics, narratives. You tell me a story and show me in that story why the, the status quo, the current condition is, um, is failing, then I begin to change my mind about the current status quo in the system, right? Changing my mind changes the stigmas. Changing the stigma changes the policy. Changing the policy does what? It changes the laws. So by empowering storytellers who are just as involved to tell their own stories and to push their stories into the world, hopefully, right? Not only are they transforming themselves, which is what we were talking about earlier with transformative justice, but they're transforming society. And it is too my goal, because I certainly am a prison abolitionist, that one day, after having enough of these narratives, that the society will determine that the reason for the prison industrial complex it, it never existed. It never happened, right? The goal did not happen. It has not worked. It's time for us to be creative and figure out something else. I think that's a hit the nail on the head, Nicole. And I also believe that, <coughs> excuse me, I believe, I'm hesitant to say it because I, I'm like, do I believe it? But I do. I believe that literature has the power to shape and change also our cultural landscape. And I think the impact of a book like this, which is why I'm so proud of it, which we have set, we're distributing 75,000 copies into prisons for free, thanks to a grant from the Mellon Foundation. My dream is this book passes hand to hand on the yard. Prison writing groups form. Publishers get interested. And I think that we have a really unique opportunity being writers and literary community to help shape the culture through things like this. A press coming to me and saying, Kate's, we want to do a vertical, an imprint for uh, justice-involved writers. And I said, great, but consider you have a political uh, agenda for your press. Why can't you just weave in uh, justice-involved writers as just other contributors? Let's, let's get out of the silo. And through the, and I think this book 
you know, does a lot of that convincing as well. How we make space, how we reconsider, we get to be a model for the larger world. And I think that we know books have shaped culture uh, throughout time. So I, I have a maybe idealistic, but um, it keeps me going, investment in being a part of the literary community and being able to help usher these voices into their rightful place in, in our little world as a microcosm of the larger world. I see it as strategic, not idealistic, yes. and I love it. I love it. I like that word, strategic. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, please. <laughs> all the things. <laughs> Vice versa. <laughs> I'm like, in a more informal setting, you would see how Nicole and I get down. <laughs> We're both putting on our professional hats, but trying. <laughs> so many snaps and, oh, and oh God. I'm putting on my wood table case. I'm trying not to bend. I'm like, they have their hair gates. <laughs> we can hear the we can hear the jingling of your bracelets. And, and no, it's fantastic because, you know, we're, we're laughing and we're joyful, but it's such a metaphor. You know, I, I'm going to tell a very brief story about this book cover, which is that, you know, originally I was sent images of prison and the book cover. And I went, no, I am not sending prison into prison. I'm not sending a book about liberation in prison into, into prison looking like prison. And actually, I just wrote an essay about this that will be published soon, I hope, um, about the creating the book cover. But uh, I said, you know, I said to the press, and they were beautiful in there. They trusted me and said, yes. I said, we got to teach pedagogy through the design. The way that work gets out, the way that uh, writers in prison are seen and heard, they, they get out through the mail. We get stacks of mail. Let's go scan the mail and some of these stamps and some of these ephem you know, this ephemeral, you know, handwriting and turn it into butterflies because the butterflies are a symbol of personal transformation, but also I imagine each poem or essay or fiction piece, you know, flying through the prison in the shape of these butterflies. It just, it just came to me and, and our designer, Melissa Jaskow at Penn, helped me bring it to life in a way I couldn't have even imagined. And that's my, I have a background in graphic design from years and years and years ago. That's my undergrad degree coming back into the fold. But my sense is that what we get to do, and this is the strategy you're talking about, Nicole, and, and I, I think it's spirit bringing your jingling bracelets and birds in, but it's like the, the strategy of, of spirit knew that we needed uh, in the midst of all this harrowing conversation to also have a lot of life. And I think that ultimately what this book is and what, you're, what you do, Nicole, is that we are championing the creative life force that cannot be distinguished no matter what. And the people who prove that. In the time that remains, I have one last question for the two of you. What are some upcoming projects that you are working on? Kate, do you want to go first? You know, you were just saying that you um, are working on a piece about the cover. Is that um, still in the works or did you send that out? It's out. I have, I have the, I have it in, uh, you know, hopefully it's going to, I'm not going to say it in case they reject it, but uh, the pitch was accepted. So hopefully the essay will be. So keep it, we have tons of press coming for the book. We have we, uh, one of the projects I want to mention is the coming down the pipeline, probably in about a year is the incarcerated writers bureau, which is really a project that's going to help writers in prison and publishers and advocates on the outside connect and be able to really uh, put a framework around helping those connections flourish. So keep an eye out for that. And I will put in a plug for my own personal life. I am putting out a podcast soon called Flowers for Linda that deals with the lessons of grief and creative friendships. Um, so uh, Nicole, you'll have to be on that podcast with me too. You do not even know. I, like, I, I am Chester Cat grinning ear to ear right now. I can't wait for that. Yes. Coming, coming in a week or two with the first episode. So. Awesome. Yeah. awesome. <laughs> How about you, Nicole? Oh, please. Uh, I'm writing, right? So I'm working on my memoir in progress, Crack Concrete. It's um, a memoir of crack cousins in crime. Um, I'm also, you know, arts administering. <laughs> <laughs> so making sure that in, invisibilized yet insurgent voices have access to literary arts opportunities. Um, yeah, so if you're a storyteller of color, 
looking to expand your craft, I would definitely say, or build your community, come through to rootswoundswords.org. But also, right, if you're a writer, um, if you're a storyteller that's interested in pushing your craft, interested in teaching craft or a hybrid of the two, definitely grab at least one copy of the sentences that create us. Hands down, um, unequivocally, it is a life-changing offering. Nicole Shawan Jr. is a counter storyteller, editor, and the founder of Roots, Wounds, Words, a literary arts revolution for BIPOC storytellers. Kate Meisner is the director of prison and justice writing at PEN America. Together with over 50 other contributors, they produced the sentences that create us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison, published by Haymarket Books. Thank you both for this powerful, powerful conversation. Thank you for having me, us. Kate, thank you for the things. I mean, all of this was beautiful. I, I honestly can't wait to listen back. <laughs> <laughs> because you provided a beautiful space. <laughs>